Man, I, I, I was thinking that was short. I was hoping we'd do some more music. Just keep singing. Just enjoying that. Hey, uh, there's a skinny guy here today. Why don't you stand up over here? Just kind of, or just, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, we're glad that you're here, and uh, we're thankful for. Uh, God and all that he, he does and the way he answers prayer and works, you know. Um, been through a lot and um, pretty serious diagnosis and has been able to get receive amazing medical care and amazing medical treatment. And, you know, I, I think that sometimes we take things for granted and, and God gets shortchanged in the deal and because really... Some of the things that we uh, can be blessed with medically really are, are miracles. Really, it's nothing short of miraculous what God ha- allows us to do medically to, to care for, for those who are sick. And so we just, just praise the Lord for, for what he's done. And uh, so continue to mark, Kathy, we're glad that you're here. I invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Acts chapter 17. And today and for the next two Sundays, I want to speak on the subject of God in three persons. If you'll notice, much of the music today was about God in three persons, about the Trinity. And so I want to speak on the subject of God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And at the end of the message this morning, our response, our invitation time will be for us to as a church family, to come to the Lord's table. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you have followed him in baptism, and if you have and can examine yourself, and there is evidence of growing faith and devotion to Christ, and if you're doing your very best to maintain good gospel-based relationships, then you're welcome to come to the table. If any of those things that I've mentioned are not where they need to be in your life, then I would encourage you to spend that time before we come to the table in prayer. And, and uh, what a great verse, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that forgiveness is made available because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And so... Uh, If those things are true of your life, then you're welcome to come to the table. And as we're served, just let me give you a few instructions. Uh, You'll be asked to get up and go to one of the tables that uh, is the closest to you to receive the bread and the cup, to return to your seat and to prayerfully wait. And after everyone has been served, we'll take the bread and the cup together as a sign of our unity in Christ um, and worship. So from Acts chapter 17, I want to speak on the subject, who is this God? Who is our God that we worship? Who is this God? Read with me in Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. 
And some said, what does this babbler, this seed, literally translates this seed pecker, this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with any men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all and breath and life to all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Lord, would you bless your word? Would you help me to make it clear? And would you give us ears to hear and faith to respond in ways that please you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The setting for this text takes place during Paul's second mission trip, which is recorded in Acts 15 through Acts 18. The church at Antioch is his home church. It's his sending church. It's the church that prays for him and supports him. It's the church to whom 
Paul is always accountable because at the end of every trip, if you go through the book of Acts, whenever he goes out on a trip, he always comes back to his sending church and he reports everything to them that God has done and he rests a while and revives and then after a time of restoration he and healing up, he and this home church, they pray and send him back out. And this text that we read occurs on his second mission trip, which lasted about three years. So right before going out, we know in this text that Paul and Barnabas, who had previously gone out earlier on the first trip, they, they get into a, a uh, heated argument. The Bible says a contention occurs between these two brothers and it gets so heated, they're so angry at one another that the Bible says they split, they part ways. It's kind of the Baptist church planning model, if any of you know anything about our history. And so instead of this church, instead of sending out one mission team, they send out two teams, Paul and uh, splits up with Barnabas. So Barnabas takes John Mark, his cousin, and the Bible says they go off to Cyprus and throughout the rest of the book of Acts in the New Testament, Barnabas is never heard from again. But he goes out on mission. And then Paul then partners up with Silas and the, the second mission trip, the strategy was to go back, to kind of backtrack and to go backwards and to revisit all of the previous cities and all of the previous churches which they had visited on their first trip. And in Acts chapter 16, if you'll notice before this, when they arrive in his little city called Derby, it's there that the apostle Paul meets Timothy. And the Bible says of Timothy that he was well spoken of and had a good reputation and it's there that Paul invites this young brother to join the team. And so these three, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, for the next three years, go off on mission, revisiting churches, trying to teach and train and encourage the believers uh, to be faithful in fulfilling the Great Commission. This text takes place many months into this second trip. Paul, the text as it begins here in verse 16, he's by himself. He's alone in this Greek city of Athens in the previous six months. I just went back and started looking scripturally at everything that, this, that Paul had been through. And these previous six months leading up to this time, he's left his home church, these three brothers, but it had been a grueling six months. He has been accused of multiple crimes, arrested several times, thrown into jail. He's been ridiculed, threatened, literally stoned to death. Jews so angry at him, they drag him outside and pelt him with stones until he's lifeless and bleeding. And the Bible says he should have died except that God raised him up and strengthened him. And as these three brothers traveled from one city to another during this time, the persecution that they're experiencing from both Jews and Greeks continues to intensify. In Acts chapter 16, right before this in Philippi, he and Silas have just been beaten with rods, thrown into prison, delivered by an angel of the Lord. And in Acts 17, after they leave Philippi, they travel to Thessalonica, and things in Thessalonica grow even worse. And so hostile are many of those people there that Paul's life is in danger. So the Bible says in Thessalonica that some of these brethren, they intervene and they 
slip Paul and Silas and Timothy out of the city by night and send them down to Berea. Hostile Jews there from Thessalonica get word that he's down in Berea. And so they're so angry, so intense, so set on killing him and taking his life. They travel from Thessalonica to, down to Berea to find him, wanting to kill him. And the Bible says in order to protect him that even once the brethren at Berea find that out, that they send Paul away by sea. In fact, a few of these Berean brothers, they accompany Paul and they travel with him to the city of Athens here and Paul and Timothy stay behind. It's about a 300 mile trip, Thessalonica down to Athens. And then, so after they make this voyage, uh, Paul says, hey, when you guys go back, Hopefully the pressure will be off. I want you to tell Silas and Timothy to get here with me as quickly as you can. And so the setting is probably about a year out now from leaving Antioch, having been arrested, threatened, beaten, ridiculed, accused, stoned, and left for dead, beaten with rods, on the run for his life. The interesting thing is never through any of that does he stop one time from ministering the word of God. Nothing, nothing deters him. Nothing stops him. I was thinking about that and this week and going through this text. And I was thinking, reason one of, one of the best ways for all of us to advance the kingdom as we serve the Lord and to achieve maximum impact for the Lord Jesus Christ is through the ministry of the Word. Through the ministry of the Word. It's something that all of us could do. All of us could do. All of us think about could we could launch a Bible study. We could create a new Bible study group. Think about this. Men's classes and women's classes and couples classes and singles classes and Bible studies for those out of high school and Bible studies for those with addictions, with struggling with alcohol or Bible studies with those struggling with drugs, classes on Sunday mornings, classes through the week. Bible studies in our homes, Bible studies in coffee shops, Bible studies in restaurants, Bible studies in sandwich shops, Bible studies in the workplace, before work, on our lunch hour, after work, Bible studies in the high school, before school, after school, Bible studies in college dorm rooms and rec centers and Bible studies in our neighborhoods. Think about that. No, some of you are thinking, well, I don't know about me starting a Bible study. You know, some of us think I was kind of peculiar, kind of weird guy. Well, good. That'd be a wonderful thing for you to be different. Not different for the sake of being different, but different because of your commitment to the gospel. Different because of your commitment to Christ. I, I just, this has been on my mind more and more recently. Not only are you and I to be different and peculiar as God's people called out of this world, in the world, but not of the world, transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might prove what is that good and acceptable will of God, God's holy people, a, a chosen generation that we might declare the excellence and seas of, and the, how marvelous marvelous God is to others around us. Not only is that going to make you and I peculiar, but if we raise our kids the way that we're called to raise them, they're going to be peculiar. And then as they get older and they get out of, out of the house, then they're going to have to make a choice. Am I going to embrace the peculiarity of being a gospel follower of Christ? Or are they going to try to just navigate and fit in and blend in the world so no one will know who they are? That's who we are. 
And one of the best ways to advance the gospel is to look for ways to connect with people all around us, to build relationships, and then to minister the word of God. Someday, if I ever get so old that I can't pastor a church anymore, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to just keep finding ways to build relationships with guys around me that I meet, guys that might have some needs, and I'm going to try to build relationships with those guys and then gather with them in Bible studies, which I've always done in my life. Coffee shops, meeting with brothers during the week just to help them get stronger in God's Word with an aim, with an aim to help them to mature in Christ. And so here is this setting. Paul is alone in Athens, this huge city all by himself. And after a hard 300-mile trip from Thessalonica to Athens, he's alone waiting for Silas and Timothy to get there, but he doesn't waste time. He doesn't kick back and raise his feet up in a hotel room. No, during that waiting period, he's intentional. And the Bible says he immediately begins to do two things. First, he surveys the city. He walks through the city of Athens. It's a Greek city, a huge city noted for its size. It was one of the largest populated cities in the world. It was noted for its education. It was noted for its wealth and for its trading and commerce. The the arts flourished there in the city of Athens. The theaters and the entertainment and beauty and culture. Steeped in Hellenism, Greek philosophy. Men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle were there. Religious pluralism abounded. Some of you may have said to study Greek mythology when you were going up through school. Paul was not conducting just a survey of all the demographics of the city, but it was a spiritual survey. He began to walk through the city and begin to develop a spiritual assessment of what he saw. And verse 16 of the text says, he saw that the city was given over to idols. The word given over there means immersed. It was immersed. It was overtaken with idolatry. What's an idol? Well, an idol for us is anything in our life that excites us more than God, that moves us more than God. Anything that we place before God is an idol. And we can take a lot of good things and make idols of them because they become more important to us than God. Verse 16 says that what Paul saw as he saw this city immersed in idolatry, it says says he was provoked in his spirit, which means he was moved. He was deeply disturbed. The The word literally refers to an internal storm. A storm began to brew within him. All of this idolatry revealed that these people of the city of Athens had a great capacity for God. They were curious in God. They were interested in God. They knew that there had to be a God, something beyond them, someone out there. And they were seeking to know this God, to worship this God. Practically, I would encourage you, wherever you find yourself this week, wherever your mission field is, wherever you work, wherever you go to school, just to get alone by yourself, wherever that is, wherever God has placed you, and do the same thing. Do a spiritual assessment. Wherever God has put you. And really look at where you spend your time and look at it prayerfully. Conduct an inventory of the environment and what it's like and of the people who are there and prayerfully ask God to give you spiritual eyes to show you what God wants you to see in the workplace. 
And then after you do a spiritual assessment like the Apostle Paul, then ask God to show you what he wants you to do, how he wants you to serve, how he would like for you to engage. I've come to realize over time that wherever we work, wherever we spend a lot of our time, that workplace is more than just a place to make a paycheck. Wherever we work, wherever we spend our time is more than just putting in the time so they'll pay us. It's more than just that. We're on mission, in school, on the job, wherever God's placed you. And there's always opportunities to represent him. And so I would encourage you to do that. And ask God to show you how to, how to engage, how to connect with people for purposes of building relationships and advancing the gospel. In verse 17, Paul is very strategic. He engages them with the gospel. He's intentional. And notice, notice what it says he does. He goes where people are. He doesn't sit back and wait for them to come to him. He goes. He engages with people. He, he goes where they're worshiping. He goes wherever they're working. It means he goes, the text says he goes into the marketplace. He goes into the synagogue. And it's very specific. He engages Jewish brethren in the synagogue and he begins to reason with them and then he goes into the marketplace and he engages with common citizens and then he goes with these Greek philosophers to the Areopagus. In verse 17 it says he reasons with them. Well, how does he reason with them? Well, he reasons them always from the scriptures. He uses the Old Testament scriptures to help them to see who Jesus Christ was and is. And so he, he gets to the gospel. And at the end of verse 18, it says, he proclaimed to them Jesus and the resurrection. Evidently, the message that he shared created some interest. Because if you look at verse 18, it says that certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they heard the message, they heard the gospel, and it was all very new to them. What do we know about the Epicureans? Well, and what do we know about Stoics? Well, I would propose to you Epicureans and Stoics are alive and well in this country. They don't go by those names, but we have Epicureans and Stoics all around us. What are, who are the Epicureans? Well, the Epicureans were atheists. They were atheists. They denied God's existence. They rejected any belief in an afterlife. You know any Epicureans like that around you? I do. They're predominantly materialists. That life is, this life is all that there is. And so you should milk it and get all that you can out of this life because there's nothing after this. Epicureans believed in pleasure. Pleasure was the highest valley of virtue and all pain and all self-denial and all suffering was to be renounced because everything was about pleasure and living for the moment. I would propose to you there's Epicureans all around us. And their motto is the same as what you'll see on alcohol commercials on television. You always see these pictures, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you're going to die. I mean, that's, that's the kind of the messaging that we see. There's all kinds of Epicureans around us. And there's Stoics. Stoics were pantheists. Stoics believe that uh, that everything was God. They, they worshiped the rocks and they worshiped the trees and they worshiped the water and they worshiped the sun and the stars and the moon. And their motto was just grin and bear it. There's Stoics around us. 
Stoics urge moderation. Don't get too high on life. Don't get too low in life. Don't be too happy. Don't be too sad. And apathy, apathy was valued because apathy protected the mind. It kept you from being too stressed out. You don't think people are apathetic today? You, you look at a lot of young men, 18, 19, 20, 21, older years, you know, you know how many hours a day they'll spend in front of television sets, playing video games, just checked out, passive, apathetic. We have a growing problem with apathy among a lot of young men. Stoics, Epicureans. These two philosophies are alive and well today. Atheists, materialists, the, those who are religious, earth and tree huggers all around us. People living for causes today other than God. How are we going to solve everything politically? How are we going to solve everything with education? How are we going to solve all the world's troubles with science? How do we spread wealth? How do we make it so everyone is equal, so everything is fair? How do we live for pleasure, for fun, and for the moment, and live for the weekends? Epicureans, Stoics. And it's these brothers in verses 19 through 21 who ask the Apostle Paul, what is this new doctrine of which you are speaking about? Verse 20, what is this strange message? We're all very curious. Can we hear more from you, babbler? It's all very strange what you're saying. And the result is in verse 19, mostly out of curiosity and perhaps out of amusement, they take him to the Oropagus, to this large stone hillside. And on it, there was an elevated porch with a stage with a platform. And it was surrounded by seats for these city councilmen, for these great men of learning and philosophers to sit. And so Paul is invited to speak. He has, a, has an audience. And I want you to notice what he does in verse 22 and 23. He provides a great introduction. He says, oh, oh, men of Athens, very respectful. Very respectful. He compliments them. And he, he's looking for common ground as he begins to speak. I can easily tell that you brothers are religious men, for I toured your city and I saw the, all of these objects of your worship. And notice he's very careful not to offend them as he begins. He says, objects, not idols. And then he looks for a way to connect, a bridge. Hey, I noticed that one of your altars has this inscription on it, to the unknown God. Verse 23, he says to them, let me, let me tell you about him. Can I tell you about this unknown God, about that one particular altar? And for the next several minutes, Paul expounds on who this God is. His message is directly taken from the book of Genesis. He uses scripture to make every point that he's going to make as he presents God. And again, every one of these points are, you can probably find them in the first three chapters of Genesis. And again, there's no better way strategically than to help others uh, to come to know God, then by following Paul's example, two things. He's connecting with people, always looking to connect with people. To the Jews in the synagogues, to the citizens in the marketplace, in the business centers, to the philosophers here in the Oropagus. But he goes, he's always engaging, looking for ways to connect with people in conversations and dialogues and opportunities to, to share with them. 
I was laying on a table this week having a test run. There was a young lady there. And she wasn't going anywhere, neither was I. So I thought, well, I'm going to ask her some questions. And I was into looking for a way, just kind of easing to get to know and start asking her questions. And it was just a nice conversation as the test was run. And I got to be a little more specific about her life and what she was going through as a single mom. She was very friendly, very kind. Got an opportunity to invite her to church, share a little bit with her. Came back to the office, typed out a letter, dropped it back off to the hospital the next day and asked somebody if they would give that to that young lady. I'm telling you, there's all kinds of opportunities to connect with people if we'll just engage and just talk and act like we care about them. And to be kind, people will people engage with us. And then, So Paul engages, he connects with people, and then he's looking for ways to share the scripture, to share the gospel. And in verses 23 through 41, this is the heart of what I want to share with you in closing. He presents God. He tells them about God. All of it straight from Genesis. What does Paul say about this God? And I'm going to go through this very quickly. And just, just feel very inadequate to try in a few minutes to try to convey these truths about God. He starts in verse 25. He says, this God, this unknown God whom you were worshiping, he doesn't need anything. He's all sustaining. This God has no beginning. This God has no end. This God never tires. He never grows weary. He never faints. This God is the creator. In verse 24, he says, he made the world and he made all things on the earth and in the world. In verse 25, he says, this God who created everything gives life and breath to all living things, to everyone and to everything. He's the creator. In verse 28, he says, he created mankind, the crown jewel of all of his creation. And he created every race on the earth, every nation, every tribe, every people group have all been created by God. They've all come from one man. He says all of these tribes, people, groups, and nations have all come from one man's blood. Verse 28, we are all his offspring. Verse 27, we are all created in his image, which means everyone who was created was created with an inner sense of God. They're born that way. You were created that way with an inner sense that there is a God and that this God exists. And while some may deny it and disregard their conscience and this created sense of morality and right and wrong that God places within all of us, and while some may disregard God's revelation of himself in creation and in conscience and in morality and, in the, and in even in nature, the Bible says those who reject, who deny, it says they're fools. And what causes the denial for them to be foolish, the Bible says, is sin. But even a denial of God doesn't change the fact of him being our creator made in his image with a capacity to relate to God. To, we were created to worship God, to seek him and to find him and, and to know that he's not far from us. Verse 29, this God doesn't, Paul says, doesn't live in a piece of stone. Our God does not reside in statues. He, gold images and cannot contain him, nor do they 
really represent him. Paul is declaring that this God, this God, he is the one God. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, the one true and living God, and he is divine, and our God is holy and radiant and pure and righteous without any sin. Our God is perfect and faithful and unchanging and loving and good. He is the omnipotent God. He has all power. He is the omniscient God. He knows all things. He is the omnipresent God. He's ever present with us. He is the all-sovereign God in control, always working, always moving, all of creation according to his plan. And he's full of glory. He's full of glory. And if you go back to the beginning of Paul's message in verse 24, he says, and he's the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven. He's the Lord of the earth. This is who God is. And then he shifts and he says, and this is who man is. This is the gospel. It begins with God. Then he shifts and this is who man is in verse 29 and 30. All of us, all of us are his offspring. We're all his offspring and we've all been called to repent. And the reason we're called to repent is because in Genesis 3, man sinned against God, disregarded his words and his commands and deliberately chose to disobey to choose to do his own thing, to go his own way, to make his own decisions apart from God. And that sin resulted in separation with God. The relationship was disrupted. Sin always destroys relationships. It, sin will mar our relationship with God, and sin always mars our relationships with other people. And so God commands that all of us repent to change our minds to turn from ourselves, to turn from our sins and to seek God's forgiveness and a right standing with God for the relationship to be restored for you and I to enjoy fellowship and intimacy with God, to walk with God, to worship God, to serve God. God, he begins there, he moves to the gospel and talks about man and then he presents the solution. The solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 31, he says, to prove that this man that we're telling you about, this Christ is true, God, this creator, this unknown God whom you worship has revealed himself to us through this man. This God that you worship took on human flesh. He was born in the likeness of men. And this man demonstrated how God intends for all of us to live life. For he lived without sin. He lived a righteous, perfect life. He kept all of God's commands. This is the way that God designed for all of us to live. And this man died. But death didn't hold him. The grave couldn't contain him. This man was raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And Paul says the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's stamp, his sign of providing you and I with assurance that this message of the gospel is true. And by this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says God one day has ordained that the world would be judged by him. And he closes in verse 30, and he calls them to repent. He calls them to repent. And at the end of this message, you see the results. Look at verses 32 and 34. The Bible says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, 
Some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And down in verse 34, it says, however, some men joined him and believed. Responses to the gospel. These responses to who God is and responses to God's solution for our sin, which is in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. And through the cross, we have forgiveness of sin. And through the resurrection, we have new life. The Christian life is not just having our sins forgiven. The Christian life is new life, new life, abundant life through the resurrection. And so people respond to the message. Some mock, reject it. It's foolish. How could anyone believe such a crazy message? And so they mock the gospel. They mock God. The Bible says others delay. They procrastinate. They hear it. Perhaps they're moved. Perhaps they're convicted, but they delay. It says, some says, we'll hear you later again on this. And it's delay, which is, in essence, if we delay a faith response to the gospel, in essence, it's rejection. If you don't accept the gospel, you reject it. But then the good news in verse 34, it says, but some heard and some believed. Do you remember the day? Do you remember when you first heard the gospel? And the Holy Spirit produced faith in you and you knew it was true and you believed God moved in your spirit. The spirit bore witness with you and drew you to, to God and, and you believed. You responded through with trust and responded with faith. What is your response this morning? This is a pretty simple message on the gospel is what it is. This is who God is. This is who we are. We're sinners. We've all sinned. This is the way God demonstrated his love for us. Jesus Christ took on human flesh and sacrificed on a cross for us. He sacrificed. He sacrificed for your sins and he sacrificed for my sins. And the Bible says, if we repent of our sins, that God will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel. How will you respond? It might be those of you here this morning that you've heard it, and, but you've delayed, you've kind of put it off, you've kind of rejected, really responding by faith. By faith. I want to urge you this morning that all of your responses to God would be through faith, that you trust him with your life that you trust him with your life, that you would turn from sins, that you would live for him and look for ways to serve him and look for ways to connect with people, to engage with people and to look for opportunities to share how much you love God and what Christ has done for you, what he means to you. I'm going to ask that we bow together in prayer and ask the deacons to come and musicians to come and as they play softly, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to take your time and for the next couple of minutes that you and I would come to the table and receive the bread and the cup and go back to our seats and spend some moments in introspection.
Paul said, let each of you examine yourself not to take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. And after we've done that, we'll pray and, and receive this together. And so you, you come. As God's Spirit leads you, you come to His table.
So on the night that Jesus gathered with his disciples, uh, celebrate the Passover at the end, he instituted the new covenant, the gospel. He took bread and he prayed over it, he blessed it, and then he took that bread and he passed it around the room to his disciples and he said, as often as you eat this bread, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember who I am and I want you to remember what I've done for you. And so they took the bread. And then the Bible says that after the bread, he took the cup, he did the same thing. He prayed over it and he passed the cup and they all drank from it. And he said, Whenever you drink this cup, I want you to remember. I want you to remember what I'm about to do for you on the cross. I want you to remember that I poured out my blood for you. And let this be a reminder to you to stay focused on the gospel. And so they took the cup. And then the Bible says, I don't know if it says they stood, but we're going to stand. So we'll invite you to stand. It says they sang a hymn, and then they went out on the Mount of Olives. And so let's sing together. And Set my feet on a solid rock. 
Hey, next Sunday, time change. We're going to lose a little sleep, but I uh, hope that you'll come. and We'll start back Sunday school, full bore. So hope that you'll be here. Invite somebody to be with you next Sunday. Uh, Don and Katie are away. Um, some of you may not know, uh, year, it'll be a year tomorrow that they lost Will. And so they're just uh, spending a little time together this weekend. I was also going through, we had 13 members of our church who lost a spouse or a son or a daughter this year, 13. And so let's continue to be in prayer and be uh, to just can minister to each other. And so I hope that you have a great day. Boy, it's beautiful out, so have a good day, and let's uh, go forth, engage with people, look for opportunities to share the gospel. God bless you.